In a park near the Sumida River, there's a memorial to the 100,000 killed by the earthquake of 1923. That was built in 1930. There's the memorial to the 6,000 ethnic Koreans who were killed during and after the earthquake. That was built 50 years later, in 1973. Then there's the memorial to the 100,000 killed by American bombing in March 1945. Tokyo has burned many times. Its citizens come here to Yokoamicho Park twice a year to commemorate the dead. You can come any time to see what fire does to metal. Given the ever-present threat of destruction in Tokyo, you need places to come and pray. Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, we're exploring Tokyo's low city, the flatlands northeast of the Imperial Palace, much of it reclaimed from the bay, where commoners settled to serve the early modern military elite, where banks and businesses set up shop from the late 19th century onwards, and where much of the real work of the city continues to be done. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this episode, we explore how Tokyo particularly the working-class districts of the low city, have been destroyed time and time again. But we'll also see how the city and its people have responded to this and bounced back. They've prayed in temples and shrines, but they've also played, often quite close by. We'll start at Ikoin, a temple just south of Ryogoku, which gives its name to a bridge a station and a sumo stadium. We'll meet you there. So here we are in the courtyard of Ekoin Temple. The air is thick with incense. It almost feels like a church, which it almost is. In front of us, we've got a modernist main hall. Over to the left, the cemetery with the tombstones, which we can see through the gate, and around us all kinds of monuments. What is this place? In the mid-17th century, Japan has been at peace for half a century. The regime has made it through three generations and looks as if it will survive, not least because it's bolstered by religion, which we saw in the previous episode. But the city is groaning at the seams as it grows, with overcrowding, epidemics and crime. It was designed by a military regime for control and defence, not as the centre of a booming nationwide early modern economy and the largest city in the world, which it soon will be. So, on the 2nd of March, 1657, in the early afternoon, a fire breaks out in a temple in Hongo. 
It's on the far side of the University of Tokyo, which we also saw in the previous episode. Maybe a priest was burning a cursed kimono. Maybe the authorities set the fire intentionally to help with their replanning of the city. But soon, in any case, it spread to the southeast, fueled by high winds. In Asakusa, just north of here, thousands start to flee towards the river, and they think safety. But then the authorities close the gate of the neighborhood to stop the prisoners escaping. Here's what happens next. Those in the rear continued to press ahead with their carts. Everyone was obstructed by the pushing and shoving of the tens of thousands arriving from the rear. Then from three sides, the fire assaulted the heaving and jostling crowds. Some tried to flee by treading on the shoulders of their fellows. Others sought to take flight by clambering onto rooftops. When all seemed lost, some took to leaping from the top of the stone wall that dropped 30 metres into the moat below. When others unavoidably landed on top, those below were trampled, crushed and killed. The uncommonly deep moat of the Asakusa Gate was filled with more than 23,000 dead bodies. For three wards in all directions, it was so thoroughly filled, it resembled a level field. By the time the fire burned out, Three days later, two-thirds of the city was destroyed, including much of the castle. We've heard about that too in an earlier walk, Imperial Capital. There are also 100,000 dead. Edo's version of London's Great Fire, which is going to happen in another ten years. And this is where the bodies of the dead are brought. First, a burial mound is built, Maninzuka, a hill of 10,000, though there are more than that. And a hall is built for the memorial service, which then becomes this temple, Ekoin, which over the years doesn't just commemorate the dead from the fire, but all living beings. There's a memorial to the fire. There's a memorial here for other disasters. There are also small little memorial stones for those who are ignored elsewhere, sex workers not least. And soon enough, because of this, the temple becomes a pilgrimage site. But it also, in time, becomes a place where people come to play. Again, the secular and the sacred are always quite close in Japan. To see how the fire changes things and how the temple has grown in the centuries since, we need to leave this courtyard and walk towards the entrance of the temple through the cloud of incense. We've come out of the main gate of the temple and we're now next to a busy main road. Looking left, we can see a bridge leading over the river, the Sumida River. Originally, the bridge there is built two years after the fire. Until then, there's only one bridge in Edo. It's much further north. Bridges weaken defence, after all. But now there's a shift from military imperatives to social order. Two more bridges follow at the end of the 17th century, one more in the late 18th. Edo has five bridges when London only has two. The bridge here is huge. It's nearly 200 metres long, and you get stunning views of Mount Fuji from it, or at least you did then. But it takes time for this area to take off and for the bridge to become an icon. 
This temple starts holding special exhibitions, kaicho, from the end of the 17th century, revealing icons and thereby earning some money. There's another fire at the beginning of the 18th century, which leads to the clearing of the area at both ends of the bridge, a hirokoji. By the middle of the 18th century, those areas and the area around the temple has become amusement central. We've got restaurants, we've got tea houses, we've got theatres and we've got sideshows. Prostitution in tea cat houses. We've also got unlicensed gold and silver cats. Especially in the summer, the river and the area around us becomes a hub of activity. It's where you escape the heat of the city. There's a river opening festival, which includes fireworks immortalized repeatedly in woodblock prints. Here's Hiraga Gennai, the great intellectual of the mid 18th century, describing the scene in 1763. Boats pass each other constantly, numerous as floating autumn leaves, and Ryogoku Bridge lies long across the water like a sleeping dragon. On the bank of the Sumida, the large drum of an acrobat show echoes up to the clouds so loudly that even the thunder god runs away in shame. In a riverside restaurant, cool, thin white noodles are shaken dry and heaped high as a snowy Mount Fuji on the island of tiny people. A mother with children holds up her wide hanging sleeve so her children won't see as they pass a sign advertising long life ointment for lengthening men's lovemaking. A cautious country samurai notices a man wearing a wide sedge hat suspiciously far down over his face and moves out of the man's way, gripping the front of his robe and the purse inside. A smooth-talking juggler sends beans and sake bottles spinning up into the air and a watermelon seller on the street curses a red shop lantern nearby for stealing the fresh colour from his slices. And a few years later, there's Sumo. Sumo has ancient religious roots... But in this period, the early modern period, shrines start holding sumo bouts to raise funds. Religion has to be subsidized somehow. And in 1768, the shogun says that this temple, Ekoin, can join the party. And it slowly becomes the center of the sumo world. From 1833 to 1909, it's the site for all the tournaments in the city. With a two-story temporary facility just next door to this gate, the outline of it is still in the office block next door. Then, in 1909, a modern arena goes up in more or less the same place. It's designed by Tatsuno Kingo. We've met him before in earlier walks. He designed the Bank of Japan and Tokyo Station. He models it on the kondo of Horyuji down in Nara, but in iron this time, with 308 poles, so it's known as the Great Iron Umbrella. That building, though, is requisitioned by the Imperial Japanese Army in 1944 to make bombs. Then along come the Americans the next year, 1945, and they forbid sumo. It's a little too ancient and nationalistic for their taste. And the building becomes a site for pro wrestling. Sumo disappears across the river for 30 years. To see what's happened since... We're going to walk straight up the road in front of us, Kokugikan Dori, towards the railway bridge we can see a couple of blocks in the distance. Historian Jinai Hidenobu has already helped us understand the relationships between secular and sacred, the city and the river. Here he emphasises how Ekoin helps to transform the experience of disaster. Ekoin was... 
constructed for the people who died by fire of Meiji Taika. So from the beginning, that area was destined for the death people. So negative image existed deeply, but spiritually. So for Japanese people, it could be very positive too. But Jinai notes this side of the river was vulnerable to natural disaster in a way the more elite neighborhoods never were. We had、uh, many times disaster of flood. Central area had not damage, but、uh, opposite side of Sumida River, they had flood very often. If occur happened flood once, water remains for a long time, so people cannot.、Uh, Have a good condition、uh, from the flood. So, my anyway,、uh, it was a very problematic, difficult.、Uh, no. We'll hear more from Jinai as we make our way up the river, underlining the extent to which Edo was a water city. So we've passed under the train tracks. This was the last section of a private railway to a suburbs out to the east. It opened in 1904, and it's the first elevated track in Tokyo since this area was already heavily built up by then. And then on the right, a massive octagonal building with an imposing copper roof. There's also an apartment hotel stuck behind it. This is the national stadium for sumo, the Kokugikan. It returns here from across the river in 1985, in part because by the 1980s there's an Edo boom underway, a rediscovery of the Edo past, and this area is poised to profit, given its history as a center of popular culture in the 17th and 18th centuries. There's also the fact that Hokusai lived for most of his life quite nearby. The ward here opens a museum dedicated to him in 2016. We're turning right in front of this sumo stadium, and we're following the sign to the Edo Tokyo Museum, which we can already see looming ahead. We've come to the end of the sumo stadium now. We passed a huge TV screen showing interviews with beaming sumo wrestlers, then and now they're huge celebrities in Japan's sporting culture, and we're looking up at a massive shed elevated on stilts. This is the Edo Tokyo Museum, the incarnation of the late 80s boom, though it only comes on tap in 1993. Its design is by Kikutake Kiyonori. He was a big figure in metabolism in the 1960s, an architectural movement we've already met, and he got very invested in things like this mega structures. He claims that this building crystallizes Japanese culture in built form. It's a concrete echo for him of the traditional rice storehouse. It's exactly the same height as the now non-existent Edo Castle. You actually reach the exhibits, or you could if it was open today, through an escalator up into the roof. 
It's an impressive collection. It has impressive exhibits. It has full-scale recreations of old bridges and more. But it is closed at the moment for a revamp. The building is showing its age in more than one sense. So we're following the path now between these two monolithic things, Sumo on the left, History on the right, towards the apartment hotel. path is curving round to the right and then again to the left, round the apartment building now. On our right, we've got the Good Teeth Day monument. This was a local dental hygiene initiative back in 1925. Then beyond that, on the right, another massive building. This is NTT Docomo History Square, the history of the mobile phone, if you want to look at that. We're coming to the end of the path now, and directly ahead of us we can see a pagoda across the street. If we turned left, we would see an entrance to the Yasuda Garden, another daimyo garden, a lordly garden turned into the property of an industrial conglomerate. Beyond that, we could visit the Japan Sword Museum. In the post-war period, the Americans are cracking down on weapons, which means that family heirlooms were getting turned into fine art. We are turning left, but we're going to cross the road into Yoko Amicho Park, where the pagoda stands. So here we are in Yoko Amicho Park. We can see that that pagoda is also attached to a huge memorial hall. The Meireki fire in the middle of the 17th century is not the last time the city caught on fire. Fires were the flowers of Edo. There were earthquakes too. There was one this morning which woke me up. But the Meireki fire was unrivaled until the 20th century, which saw the city brought to its knees twice. First, in 1923, just before noon on the 1st of September, when people were cooking lunch over open fires, the ground started shaking. By the time it stopped, the fires were burning, and soon they became firestorms. By the end, when things calmed down, Tokyo, Yokohama, and the region around them both was in ruins. There were over 100,000 dead, over 40,000 missing. The dead included maybe as many 6,000 ethnic Koreans living in Japan. They were already under suspicion for wanting independence from the empire. They were rumoured, or so said some newspapers, to be exploiting the confusion caused by the earthquake, maybe even poisoning the wells. So they were targeted by mobs and vigilantes, and initially even by some army and police. The dead from the earthquake included 38,000 here. Previously, this was the location of an army clothing headquarters. The city was developing the site as a park. When the earthquake struck, people came here thinking it was safe, it was open ground. But at 4pm, they're struck by a fire whirl and consumed in the flames. The pile of their remains, three metres high, was housed in a temporary memorial hall. Then they were transferred to this pagoda in 1930. 
It was designed by an architect called Ito Chuta, together with the memorial hall in front of it, both in archaicizing shrine style. Fifteen years later, in 1945, comes the second blow. The US had started bombing Tokyo in 1942. Their ambition was to develop precision bombing on strategic targets from above the clouds with the new B-29, but it didn't work. So they built a mock Japanese village in Utah, in the American West, and experimented there. The results suggested that incendiary bombing would make sure nothing and nobody survived. So Curtis LeMay orders the Air Force to start bombing Japan. On the 9th of March, 1945, 279B-29s drop 1,665 bombs, most of which release 38 napalm-carrying incendiary bomblets. The first ones make an X over this area. This is where the docks are. This is where the working class lives. We can think of the London Blitz at this point. The next B-29 simply aim for the flames created by the first wave. When it's over, 15.8 square miles of Tokyo have been destroyed. There are maybe, again, 100,000 dead and 1 million homeless. It was the deadliest raid in history, so far at least, though Hiroshima eventually killed 140,000 thanks to its after-effects. The victims throughout the city were temporarily buried in various parks and then brought here and enshrined. Every year, there are services here on the 10th of March for the firebombing and the 1st of September for the earthquake. A citizens' group also holds a separate ceremony to commemorate the Koreans killed during and after the earthquake. The governor of Tokyo used to send her condolences but stopped in 2017 under pressure from her party. Still today, in Japan, as everywhere, the past is an unsettled thing. So we're leaving the park now. Facing the memorial hall, we're turning right and aiming for the entrance we can see in front of us. Along the way, there's a small outdoor museum which shows how the fire melted metal. In the first half of this episode, then, we've seen how Tokyo has coped with destruction by providing places where people can come to mourn, to pray, and to reflect. In the second, we'll see how another temple, further north, has also allowed them to play. But first, we'll take a break. Welcome back. So far, we've seen how memorials have helped the people of Tokyo come to terms with the repeated disasters that have befallen the city. Now, we'll explore how religion can also have a lighter side, providing a place both for prayer and for play. So we're going to leave the park now. Facing the memorial hall, we're turning right and heading for the entrance we can see straight ahead of us.
So we've left the quiet of the park, a place for reflection, and we're immediately back out on a busy road. We're turning left here and heading straight for and over the bridge we see in front of us. So we've walked under the freeway and up onto the bridge now, and we're standing in the middle of it. It's Kuramai Bridge. It was built in 1924 after the earthquake, one of many. Its name, Kuramai, in front of the warehouses, comes from the fact that long ago, where the pink nondescript building now stands, the shogunate built 67 warehouses and eight keys to store the rice collected from its domains in the countryside. The shogunate used that rice to pay its retainers. The retainers then handed it over to merchants in exchange for cash and loans so that they could maintain their lifestyle in the city, albeit they went into debt to do so. In the middle of those keys, moreover, there was a famous pine tree spreading its branches over the water, and people heading by boat to Yoshiwara, the brothel district, would pause here to pray for success to play with the courtesans on the boat or to give thanks for what had happened when they passed back this way at dawn. That pine tree and the warehouses form the subject of one of Hiroshige's famous 100 views, which we already met in the previous episode in Ueno. In the 20th century, this area on the other bank is turned over to the government. There's a vocational school there. That's where the sumo stadium is between the 50s and the 80s. Now it's the Metropolitan Government's sewage offices and works. We're standing in the middle of the bridge now, in a little nook, with an impressive stone balustrade with some metal sumo figures embedded in it. So we're continuing over the bridge now. When we get to the other bank, we're going to go down the steps leading to the promenade by the river and head north past that pink, nondescript building on our left. So we're walking beside the Sumida River now. We've got that pink, nondescript building on our left. As we walk up this promenade, we've got manicured pine trees on the left, a nod to its heritage, as well as some prints showing the original pine, many of them by Katsushika Hokusai, probably the greatest artist of early 19th century Japan. I helped curate a show of his at the British Museum a few years ago, and we came here to the other side of the river to visit the places he lived and worked on our own little pilgrimage. Keep going here for two more bridges, a green one and then a blue one. We'll stop just on the other side. Hokusai lived for most of his life on the east side of the Sumida, but... Famously, he depicted views of Mount Fuji from throughout the city and beyond. We talked to artist Toru Matsushita about another river Hokusai depicted in the west of the city, which you can still see if you really look and listen. It's a 
So we're standing on Cat Street at the place where Hokusei makes a very famous print in his landscape series, one of the 36 views of Mount Fuji, of a water wheel, because we're standing on top of a river, but you can't see the river now. You have a fashion street. Why are places like this so important for you? Because history of Tokyo is divided. Like yeah. Tokyo had a big destruction two times. First one was uh, because of the earthquake just 100 years ago. This, this year is like a hundred years anniversary, and the last one was World War Second. You know, each time like everything is destroyed and built new thing, and so you can really see real Edo in knowledge. And there's one small thing showing this place had had a river. It's the rock. It's just we are just standing on the rock. This used to be a um, bridge stone. Right. <laughs> okay. yeah. So these stones in the road used to be a bridge. Yes, yes. And so now I am in the water. Uh, yes. And uh, now I am on the bridge. <laughs> I think this is the water. You're oh. on the ground. <laughs> yes. This bridge used to go cross this way. Because Cat Street is the water. Mm-hmm. And then the bridge would have come over to the other side. Mm. And on the other side of the road, there were just fields, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Even here, this is just a village on the outskirts mm-hmm. of the city, mm. with lots of countryside around it. But it's very different from Hokusai's print. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. In the Hokusai's time, it was, you know, rice field mm-hmm. and also swamp. Yes, yes, mm. because very wet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Shibuya means valley, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's actually valley. We visit Cat Street and the Invisible River in our episode on tearing down and dressing up. So we've made it under that second blue bridge and we're just pausing here to look back across the river. We've got an extraordinary collection of buildings over there, including a massive tower. These are all recent attempts to transform the fortunes of working-class Tokyo. In the early 20th century, as Japan industrialized, as in other cities, the river was the place to put polluting industries, including brewing. And during the post-war period, as Japan and other parts of Tokyo got richer, this area, across the river, fell on hard times. But come the 1980s, capital and confidence was accumulating. And so these buildings started to sprout on the site of a former brewery. Over on the left, a round building, we've got the Sumida City office. Next to it, a golden tower, we've got the headquarters of Asahi Beer. And then next to that, lower but much more striking, is a beer hall designed by Philippe Stark with a flame, supposedly, on its top. It's meant to symbolize the burning heart of the company, or maybe the frothy head of their beer. By the locals, it's known as the golden turd. But those buildings don't solve the problem, and the conversation about how to resurrect the district continue into the 90s. I was part of them even later. And so we see the tower. The Tokyo Skytree, it opened in 2012. It's over 2,000 feet high. It's a broadcasting and observation tower. Originally, it was the second tallest structure in the world, next to the Burj Khalifa. Now it's the third. It's the centre, over there, of a local private rail company-owned commercial complex, which includes an aquarium. Indeed, it did get 1.6 million visitors in its first week. 
but according to the locals, it's had very little economic impact more widely within the community. So we're not going to climb to the sky. We're going to stay closer to the ground. We're going to explore how a temple on this side of the river has spawned a more diverse streetscape and a more sustainable ecosystem. So we're going to leave the riverside now. We're climbing these stairs back up onto the road. And now at the top of the stairs, we're going to cross over two roads. We'll pass a red shrine on the right, another road, and then turn right down a tree-lined avenue leading to a great gate. We're heading down Namikidori now, tree-lined street, quite literally, leading to the temple gate in the distance. Even here, though, it's clear that faith is surrounded by everyday life, insurance offices, some dental hygienists, and things like that. On the right now, we've got the austere, discreet frontage of a new religion. This was founded in the end of the 60s. It's God Light Association, GLA. And according to their mission statement, they want every person to awaken and aspire to fulfill their individual mission for the creation of a shining, revitalized world. It has 23,000 members. But ahead of us, the gate of a temple which attracts many more. We're going to cross the road and stand by it to start telling the story of Asakusa. Here's Jinai one more time, underlining the difference between the hilly areas where the elite lived, which we explore in other walks, and the flatland near the river where we are now. There was a social hierarchy in the total city of Edo, Tokyo. Of course, in the middle, there was a castle and high-class samurai residence and Nihonbashi rich, rich merchants. And in marginal area, there are um, lower class residences. Also, we have a special term to indicate that area, uh, Kawamuko. Uh, Kawamuko, this term was uh, prohibited to use for the uh, NHK <laughs> television, <laughs> etc. A little bit sabetsu uh, yogo. Discriminatory. Now a little bit uh, better we can say existence of uh, Sumida River was meaningful. They say Agiladi Fiume, Mukogawa. What do you mean? The other side of the river. The other side of the river. People could feel freedom more if go there because control, social control, political control became uh, weak. For the artist, for the person of culture, uh, that the area had a special meaning. We'll see how it's been possible for people in modern times to experience freedom and make art even on the west side of the city in our walk on Neo-Tokyo. So here we are, sheltering from the wind in the lee of Kaminarimon, 
the Thunder Gate, which is the entrance to Sensoji, one of Tokyo's great temples and also a magnet for tourists. We're surrounded by throngs of them now, many of them in kimono playing dress-up, retreating to the past, and munching on street food, which we can also smell. It's very different from the incense that confronted us at the beginning of this episode. Way back in the early 7th century of the Common Era, so the story goes, two fishermen who were brothers scooped up a 55 centimeter tall now-never-seen statue of Kanon, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, from the river we've just walked along. Soon enough, there's a temple here with a town, Asakusa. It means shallow grasses. It's very well situated for fishing, for transport, and for shelter. The temple had a gate in the late 10th century, but it was only moved here early in the 17th century as the city around it begins to grow. It's got the wind and thunder gods facing the town, hence the name Kaminarimon. They're not original, though. Their heads are quite old, but they've burnt repeatedly, and their bodies were rebuilt in 1865. The gate itself was rebuilt in the 1960s. The temple is almost destroyed in the Second World War. And it's Matsushita, or Panasonic, as you may know them, that donated the massive lantern that hangs down from it. Apparently, after coming here, the founder of that company was cured of an illness. But the connection between the temple and business, the busyness of the temple, goes way back. Temple and town moved into high gear following the great 17th century fire, which we talked about at the beginning of the episode. After that fire, the shogunate orders the brothel district, Yoshiwara, to move from Nihonbashi, where we started this walk, just north of where we are now. And so the temple sees an increasing number of people on their way to and from the courtesans. In 1685, therefore, the temple allows the residents of the town to set up shops inside the precincts and exploit the passing traffic. We see the descendants of those shops in front of us, a long row of stalls leading to the next huge gate. The whole thing declined in the post-war period. Recently, it's bounced back, and we're going to fast-forward through much of the history. For now, we're going to walk up this line of shops to the next great treasure gate. We're going to smell the food, we're going to hear the sounds, and we're going to try not to buy anything, at least on this visit. Sociologist Shunya Yoshimi has researched and written much about Sakariba, places where people gather to enjoy themselves. Here he underlines the connection between geography and politics. In Tokyo, there is some Sakariba emerged from Edo era in the fringe of this city. Asakusa, Shiba, Ryogoku, and Ueno, those areas have been Sakariba in Edo era. Because Edo city was basically very traditional, so main area of the city around the castle, uh, such kind of Sakariba was impossible because all the, all the behavior uh, of the ordinary people is so much strictly controlled that people can enjoy at the fringe of the city. We explore the modern versions of Sakariba in our walk, Neo Tokyo. So we've made our way through the crowds and we're standing under the eaves of Hozomon, the great treasure gate. Originally it was called Niomon after the wrestler guardians of Buddha. Their figures are on either side of the gate. 
This too was rebuilt in the 60s in fireproof concrete. It had titanium roof tiles added in 2007. The gate also gets new straw sandals. A huge pair of them hangs on its backside. It gets those new ones every 10 years. There's a huge lantern hanging down from the roof under which we're going to pass. On it is written Kobunacho. This is a district we walked through in an earlier episode of this walk. We've got a five-story pagoda over to our left. That was rebuilt in 1973. And ahead of us, we've got the great main hall, the Kanondo, where that scooped-up statue resides. That was the first thing rebuilt in 1958, again in concrete. It's got pictures of dragon and heavenly beings on the season, but they too were done recently. Over to the right, we can see some shrines to the east of the hall. We can see a gate, Nitenmon. That was originally the entry gate to a Toshogu shrine. We saw one of these in Ueno, but the one here burned down in 1642, and that's all that survives. There's also an Asakusa shrine, dedicated to the founders of this temple. And originally it was part of the whole complex, but in the Meiji period, at the end of the 19th century, Buddhism and Shinto are separated by the government, and since then it's been independent. But we're going to go to the left of the main hall. We're heading for a small garden with another collection of buildings and artefacts, some old, some new. This was assembled in the 1990s as temple and town tried to reinvent themselves, drawing both on ancient history and modern memory. That's the story we're going to tell next. So we've made our way straight through that park, out the other side past a weeping pink cherry tree, and we're heading down the shopping street. We're going to pause on the next corner to tell the next bit of Asakusa's story. It's now the 18th century. The temple, the precincts are taking off thanks to the passing traffic. And street performances begin to take off in this area, Okuyama, the mountain in the back of the temple. Then, from the mid-19th century, licensed playhouses move here. They're the frequent subject of woodblock prints. For a while, it also becomes a space for high-end recreation. In 1853, a botanical garden opens. That gives its name to this small district, Hanayashiki. It's used by tea masters, it's used by poets... Gradually, though, it becomes less exclusive. Animals are moved in. Puppets, too. And then, with the earthquake, things change again. Many animals die in the earthquake's aftermath, and it becomes what we have now in front of us, an amusement park with rides. Post-war, it boasts the first domestically produced roller coaster in Japan. And that amusement park is part of a larger story about how this neighbourhood... Asakusa, for a while, became the epicenter of Tokyo's modern transformation. We're turning left here and then right through a covered arcade. We'll meet you at the end of it.
So we've come to the end of that covered arcade now, past stationers, food shops, and we've turned left. We're going to the end of the next block and then turning right by Uniqlo. We're heading past Uniqlo on one side, restaurants on the other. We've got a gate at the end, Okuyama or Mairimachi, the town for people coming to Okuyama. And we're going to pause under that gate. So we're under the gate and we're looking across the street at Don Quixote. It's not what you think, it's one of the massive discount stores in Japan. According to it, it's an amusement discount shop and it's tax free too. Back to the late 19th century. The new regime, the Meiji regime, tries to make the area around the temple more modern. In the 1870s, it designates it a park. Parks were in fashion, like the one we saw in the previous episode. In the 1880s, it creates a pond at the center of it and divides the neighborhood around it into six districts. But we're now in the sixth of those, Roku, which soon goes its own way. First comes the 12-story Ryōunkaku, the cloud-piercing tower, with Japan's first electric elevator. Soon, in 1903, Japan's first movie theater, and then the Asakusa Opera, a variety house, in 1916. There are restaurants, there are bars, there's nightlife, and Asakusa takes off. Here's Saito Ryōku at the end of the 19th century, comparing it to Ueno, which we saw in our previous walk. Ueno is for the eyes, a park with a view, but Asakusa is for the mouth, a park for eating and drinking. When you go to Ueno, you feel the day's work isn't yet finished. When you go to Asakusa, you feel that you've shaken off tomorrow's work. But Asakusa also has its problems. By the time of the earthquake, 1923, when the tower collapses, it's known as a place to pick up prostitutes. The earthquake doesn't derail things too far. The good times keep rolling. There are 14 movie houses here by 1930. And then in 1939, Kataoka Yoshikaze calls it a human market. The pleasure resort of the Edo period, the vestiges of the crude, semi-enlightened curiosity of the Meiji era, and the overripeness of the present era of capitalist corruption, are thrown together in a forever disordered state. Eroticism and frivolity and speed and comic strip humour, the bare legs of dancing girls and jazzy reviews, kiss dances, foreign girls, ground cherries and popular songs, the movies, the circus, the fake dilapidated aquarium and insectarium. Here the girls bob their hair, and bobbed hair, so-and-so, wearing a red dress, plays the piano, deep in a narrow back street lane with her knees exposed. Her rendezvous notes are scribbled on the back of the goddess canon's written oracles. Six years later, though, at the end of the war, like the rest of the low city, as we heard earlier in this episode, Asakusa burns. There's a brief revival after the war. There are strip shows here from the 1948. The pond is reclaimed in 1952. The temple, as we've heard, is rebuilt. But Tokyo was moving west as we're going to discover in another walk about Neo-Tokyo. The cinemas started closing, there were fewer dancers on fewer stages. But it's not quite the end of the story. 
to finish this episode and this walk. We're going to walk down the street ahead of us just a little way, leaving Don Quixote on our right. Early in this, the 21st century, the focus of metropolitan planning in Tokyo shifted. Earlier, it was focused on the suburbs. Now there's a conversation about revitalizing the center of town. That metropolitan effort combined with local ones to try to regenerate Asakusa itself, largely through nostalgia, through resurrecting the past. It gets a new transport link, too. We've got the Tsukuba Express station on the other side of the street. That opens in 2005. But it's in 2013 that the local merchants come together. They mobilize. In 2016, they get Asakusa designated a national strategic zone, which allows them once again to put stalls and to stage events on the street, resuscitating its theatrical past. And those efforts continue. Asakusa wants, once again, to not just be a tourist site, but a center for play. So it isn't any longer quite down and out. Still, like the rest of the commoners' capital we've been discovering in this walk, it's hard to shake the impression that it's a poor relation. It's dependent on handouts from the richer, more powerful parts of the city, which we've seen in earlier episodes and other walks. It pales in comparison to Nihonbashi, where we started this walk, where new consumerism is taking off in luxury towers. It's even lower on the totem pole than Ueno, which at least is an important commuter hub. The commoner's capital is a diverse place. It has room for all of these, and all of them continue to develop, to try to find their own way. It remains true, though, that the closer you are to the center of the city, to power and wealth, the better off you're going to be. We're left looking across the road at Kapabashi, a street of kitchen supply shops. It provides restaurants throughout the city with their pots and pans, also with their plastic models to put in the window to attract their customers. But the food is being cooked and consumed. The money is being spent and hoarded elsewhere. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.